and of course everyone's in an uproar now. This is a huge event. It was sort of like they were making fun of the government and like the fact that they didn't do anything. Yeah. And the government's like, don't worry, it was a one-time thing, like blah, blah, blah. Like, and he, one of the guys, I guess, made a comment, something like, it's not like you can play chess on them. I guess that maybe had a translation a little bit deeper in Dutch, but anyway. Sure enough, the next media event that Hacker does is where he's showing chess playing on the <laughs> screen of the voting machine, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. All of them were gone, like, overnight. Yeah. This episode of the Bluemex podcast is brought to you by Nava Wilson LLP. Nava Wilson LLP provides services in real estate, corporate law, and litigation, and is committed to increasing access to and awareness of the justice system. Nava Wilson is also the legal advisor for YSpace, York University's incubator, and The Hub, the University of Toronto Scarborough campus's incubator. They are willing to provide up to $5,000 worth of services to a select few startups in Toronto. If you're a startup looking for access to legal services, contact us at the link below to find out more. Good to go? Yeah. Okay. Matthew, finally getting started. Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me here. It's yeah. Pretty cool set you got. Yeah, thanks for coming up. Um, so I just want to backtrack to how we met, the PitchTO event, right? Um, literally, I, everyone, like, I was walking around meeting all these different startups. Um, and I met you, you're standing in front of a table just like your business cards in mm. front of you. And I'm like, this guy must be either be a madman or a genius. Because <laughs> nobody has the gall of the balls to just stand there when everybody has that whole setup. And I've been there too, mm. right? There's a whole gambit of like showcase my startup and I'm like, what's going on here? Mm. So that brought me, brought, brought me attention to you when everyone else was like uh, uh, presenting their information and stuff. And we started talking about a new vote, mm. um, hybrid voting. Right. Um, so before we even get to that, so you're a journalist who, uh, were you trained as a journalist to be a war reporter? That was my, yeah, going into it, that was my intention. Um, and then I, you know, just like in a startup, you kind of had to make a pivot at some point. Yeah. Um, journalism is an interesting field because it's, it's a dying field. Mm -hmm. So going into school to train to be a journalist, uh, they tell you from quite literally on day one, this is the school telling you, they're like, if you want to be a TV reporter, you want to work for a newspaper, you want to be in radio, chances mm -hmm. are that's not going to happen. You're going to have to figure out something else to do. Mm -hmm. So be prepared and be, you know, be agile and, and figure out where you fit into this new media landscape. Yeah. And for, for me, I, I spent the three years I was in journalism school basically trying to figure out where that may be. You know, everyone, like when we first got in there, everyone put their hand up at first and said, I want to work for Vice. And, you know, it's in Montreal, that's where they were founded, and yep. that was the big thing. Like, let's all work for Vice and be edgy and cool and yep. go to North Korea or whatever. Um, I think um, how I found the, the role I am in now was based on the political landscape. And in a city as, like, in, in, innovative and, I guess, I don't even know the word, interesting as Montreal. Like, Montreal has a real unique vibe to it. Yeah. especially with the politics. Um, when I was going there, we had previously just went through like three mayors. There were protests all over the place. The police were protesting. And so there was this like edgy kind of counterculture vibe going on, a, a disruptive vibe, if you will, throughout the whole city. So I kind of got into it to disrupt politics a little bit. And sure. that so, kind of led when me was, to... What time was it around? This what was 2000, 2012 to 2015. Okay. Yeah, so it was a really... Um, so what were these protests really geared around? 
Pardon me? What was the protest really geared around? Is this oh, Montreal protests probably daily. You can't even, under, like half of it's, uh, they raise tuition, they protest. They, you know, change the bus schedule, they protest. Yep. Hopefully that didn't offend anybody in Montreal watching this, but like, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's good though, they really keep, um, they keep politics on their toes. Yeah. The, the police, uh, when I was there, ran into the city hall or something, and like, or firefighters or something, ran into city hall and started like throwing papers around. <laughs> And like, just crazy. And yeah. like, they were walking around in their pajama bottoms, and you just get the sense that like, hold the people in charge to account. Yeah. And uh, that kind of led me down to this role, which is online voting. Right. Um, let's make it a little bit easier to access the political system, and try to make it fit in with how we kind of live our life now. Yeah, I mean, um, you hear a lot about like trying to modernize voting, and mm. there's a lot of these companies like voting machines and. The scares that comes with it, technology can be hacked, mm. technology can be taken over. And this is where you really come up because you're a hybrid system where there's still uh, a paper trail, right? So let's talk a little bit more about exactly what your solution is, and then we'll talk about why it needs to be here. Um, so, what is New Vote? Like, what, does it, what does it do that's different? So, New Vote, we like to call ourselves the hybrid system. And basically, the idea is you're absolutely right, like online voting or voting in general, when you incorporate machines or, or computers to the system changes the dynamic because voting is such an old process yeah. like we're talking historically it's like 139 BC people were like carving things up and, and dropping them or dropping them into a bucket and then it's kind of migrated paper ballots were introduced I think in the 18th century or 19th century and um, we kind of have the system now and then there are places like the country of Jordan for example where they still do a paper ballot in front of a group of people like mm. witnesses and they dip their finger in ink to prove like to, that's their way of defeating um, multiple voters. And even in Canada, we consider the Canadian system at the federal level is considered very lo-fi. Yep. It's, it's up until this upcoming election, it was like paper and a pencil to re register voters. And you went up, marked a ballot, and then you handed it to, uh, you know, you put it in the ballot box and that was it. In the US, they've incorporated machines uh, in a little bit more, um, uh, they've incorporated machines in a variety of ways. The US is a whole other ball game. Yeah. Um, in Europe, they still stick with the paper ballots. In countries like the Netherlands, where they actually had machines before, they've gone back to the paper ballot. So when we were building this thing out, we had simply looked at the problem of, okay, why can't we vote online, like realistically? Because the first app that I did was an electoral assistance application, just informing voters and trying to make things simple. But everyone, everyone I ever talked to, I got emails, thousands of emails. Why can't you vote online? Why doesn't your app vote online? And I'm like, well, it's just to educate and help you find like a polling location. We don't vote online because there's a lot of things, uh, you know, con it's contested very highly. So we started diving into like what the actual problem is. And at the end of the day, if you have any background in like cybersecurity or, or understand computer systems, you computers are vulnerable. Like engineers themselves will be like, yeah, these things only work. It's like a duct tape system. Like you just throw on patches here and there. Yeah. So to create a, a fully encompassing security system that maintains the integrity and the and the procedures inherent in voting is extremely difficult. And there's companies with a lot of backing, multi-million dollars, hundred million dollars backing, that has still struggled to get that you know uh, effectively completed. So we just simply looked at it and we're like. Okay, if the big issue is that data is a, is a contested issue, if you're worried about the data getting breached, why not just keep the paper? Mm. Like, we, we have these kind of elements coming together at the time when I was developing this thing, end-to-end um, -end video uh, encryption, like end-to-end -end video uh, encryption calls. Um, 
and then connecting the users between the two devices became the real, I guess, concept behind it. We simply said, look, take the piece of paper, keep it. Keep that as the data structure, if you will. Have a user on one end and figure out the best way to connect those two things together. And like I was mentioning, we figured that because you have two physical processes and you have to communicate between the two of them in a real-time environment, you know, printing off a piece of paper remotely is not a, is not a feat. It's, not, it's, just, it's arbitrary. But being able to actually show a voter that your piece of paper is marked and counted and tabulated as intended in real time through a video chat was something like a, of an innovative feature that we thought was really unique. And then over the few years, we kind of you know, refined and developed the system to make it as efficient as possible. And yeah, here we are now. We basically have a system that doesn't store any data. We've gotten rid of the data completely. And we basically send an intention from a voter on an application over the network to a, a piece of paper that's printed out. The voter's seeing the piece of paper printed out. It gets tabulated and like, essentially air-gapped off the system. And the voter can feel assured that their vote over the internet was counted correctly relieving a lot of the pressure and, I guess, that's concern for online That's voting. awesome. So, like, let's talk, let's talk about like a user flow, right? So, mm. you, say you can use mm. your own phone mm. with, with an application, right? When you log on to the app, um, you're, you're locked into that app? We have, um, with online voting, there's yeah. typically a bunch of, like, stages that go through. So, before there's a registration process, they, they have to, you have to pre-register to vote because the system has to know who these people are. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to create a fully anonymous system that you kind of just go into. The, the, the electoral administrators have to know who these voters are. Yeah. That's a big issue in the U.S., which yeah. is um, um, identifying a voter. It's, it's a big issue everywhere. So what we decided to do is, because we were already operating in this visual environment, we figured that we would create a portal for the electoral administrators to verify voters via video. So the electoral administrators have oversight now. So when you go to vote, you actually get to see who those people are. Now, it doesn't mean you get to see the vote. It just simply means, oh, this is a real person. It's not some random person coming in with you know, fake credentials and operating a system. It's this is the voter. They're pre-registered prior to the election. They come in. They get their, uh, I guess, accessibility token, whatever you would call it. And they're granted permission to use the system and cast a vote. How we operated on the back end, though, is because we're so data adverse, we simply don't, we, everything is within a channel that we can't even see. So we basically created a structure that facilitates that connection between the two endpoints, the voter and the paper ballot, but no outside observer can watch what's going on. So once you get verified, that's as far as we come, you know, when watching what's going on. We, we simply say, this is a voter, they're eligible to use this particular vote or this ballot in this election and we simply pass them on to the paper ballot. Whatever happens between those two points is done, and whatever intention was saved between those two points, like the actual vote, is gone from our network. We have no idea. Okay. Yeah. That sounds like a pretty innovative solution. Um, from the voters' end, mm. so what would their process look like? So I want to vote today. I get mm. a, I get a, I like a mail or email with a, co with a link, a code on it. Um, what happens there? It all depends on the jurisdiction. So uh, like a city or something, they might send out an email. They might mm -hmm. send out like a piece of paper to the, to the home address with a, a, a number for the voter, like a pre-registration number. They go into our app. They upload a scan of their ID, um, a scan of their face, which will take an image of their face. And then we store that along with some like their name and some peripheral information. We send that to the electoral administrator so that they can check off that voter on the list. They can simply say, okay, this is a real person, they're operating in real time, or the, or, and this is who they say they are. Once they're registered, we simply push a token back to the phone. Their phone becomes the, I guess, access point, the interface. 
and whenever, whatever the jurisdiction wants, we can set that token for a few months, a week, six months, whatever they would like. And when that person goes in to vote, they simply look at the phone, their face recognizes who they are, and they're passed through the system. If the facial, um, if, if they're analyzed and it falls below, like if they're not, if they're not approved, it's a, if it's a false identity or somebody trying to fraudulently use the system, they immediately get flagged and one of the electoral administrators can actually see who these people are who are trying, you know, trying to fraudulently use the system. So it creates this level of oversight that is simply not available with anything else. Yep. Um, in, in the traditional online voting sphere right now, people just get a pin code and a voter number, and these two things, those two points of information, are usually mailed on the same piece of paper to a voter. And there is like multiple cases of people getting an envelope who with that doesn't belong to them that grants them access to cast a vote. And one of the big issues that you know the critics are saying about online voting is there's going to be a whole lot of voter coercion, voter fraud, because it's like you're just creating this access point that is completely unmonitored and unsupervised. So by giving that supervision, we feel that that's a relief to both the critics and the administrators who are kind of hesitant about offering this. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, I guess that's, this takes me back to like, there's a lot of plays into um, voting machines, right? Mm -hmm. Electronic machines. So instead of going, going up, casting a paper ballot, um, it's a machine you go and you interface with. Mm. Um, and then that became under fire in the US. That's very popular in the US, but it came under fire because there's a bunch of machines that are in storage and for the last election that um, turned out to be tampered with. Mm. And then all of that got shelved. And since then, I think it, the whole electronic voting industry has been under fire, a lot more scrutiny, mm. right? Um, do you elaborate on like what are the challenges you have in having this moving? Well, you're absolutely right about the, mm -hmm. the issues getting tampered with, or the, the machines getting tampered with. In fact, the largest company in the States that produced those machines was mm -hmm. a company called ES&S. And the CEO, as of June 9th, I believe, he mm -hmm. wrote an op-ed, and the title of the op-ed is Every, Vo Every Voter Needs a Paper Ballot. Yep. So for us, it was like, great, thanks for selling our service a little bit, you yeah. know, we're, our messaging is right on point there. We were saying the same thing when we developed the system and now the industry is kind of coming along with the same kind of message, which is, look, it paper, it works. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Like sometimes things just work for a reason. Figure out ways to augment or improve the service with technology, but you don't have to like develop something completely brand new. Like sometimes things just work, keep, the, keep it, and then use technology to innovate or augment or improve without having to replace, yep. you know, sometimes outright paradigm shifts aren't necessarily a great thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's better to make trend, you know, uh, incremental changes through a system as we adjust and get used, especially with something as important as the democracy in, electing, like in elections. Yep. Uh, a funny story though about the voting machines, um, I, I had the chance to meet the Privy Council to the Netherlands, um, a, a woman named Leontine, a lawyer from the Netherlands, and basically she was in charge of facilitating the elections there. And they have been using machines before any other country. Like they had machines back in the 1960s. These mm -hmm. large, the, the voting process in the Netherlands are these giant ballots with like 400 names on them. So Jeez. like it's a very unique thing. And this country in the Netherlands was producing these machines and have been in, they've been in use for like 40, 50 years. And uh, a sort of a hacker, I guess, kind of guy was running around saying these machines can be tampered with. We can hack them. And the whole government was like, well, we're not going to change anything. Like, can't be done, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he went on TV, or he invited, um, he actually invited her originally to his house with, where he got a hold of one of these machines somehow. Like, he was quite a wealthy hacker, I guess. And 
he brings her downstairs and he's like, look, I can hack this. So she goes to the government. She's like, look, I've seen it firsthand. Like, these are really dangerous. And they're like, well, we're not, it's too much. It's going to cost too much, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he feels that he needs to kind of force their hand, if you will. So he gets a TV crew from a media company to come with them to the warehouse where they were storing these machines. And he hacks them live on TV. And of course, everyone's in an uproar now. This is a huge event. It was sort of like they were making fun of the government and like the fact that they didn't do anything. Yeah. And the government's like, don't worry. It was a one-time thing, like blah, blah, blah. Like, and he, one of the guys, I guess, made a comment, something like, it's not like you can play chess on them. I guess that maybe had a translation a little bit deeper in Dutch. But anyway, sure enough, the next media event that Hacker does is where he's showing chess playing on the <laughs> screen of the voting machine. And that was it. Yeah, yeah. All of them were gone like overnight. Yeah. Um, they, they've gone back to these giant pieces of paper now where people are count, like marking them by pencil or pen. And folding them up in these big you know, envelopes, and then they're counting them by hand every night. They hate it, they, especially the older people who are used to the efficiencies of the machines. Uh, the younger people understand the security, though. So they're actually like, you know, no, we prefer this thing. Granted, it's probably the older people who have been you know, spending all night counting those papers. Yeah. But yeah, what have you. But um, yeah, for the machines, We think in general going into a place to vote, it just doesn't make sense anymore. Or I think like there has to be institutional changes, such mm -hmm. as like voting days or weekends or something where everything just shuts down. Like we do that for the Queen's birthday in Canada, why don't we do that to elect our Prime Minister? Why is it that if I'm working in Toronto and I have to go back to Kitchener, for example, uh, voting becomes like almost impossible. If I'm, you know, leave work at five, I only have a few hours to get back to Kitchener and people are like, oh yeah, it's not that far try leaving Toronto at five o'clock to yeah. get back to Kitchener. That's like a three hour event. Mm -hmm. And then you go home, you got, maybe you have kids, maybe you have a bunch of obligations you have to take care of. And, and now you have to take time out of your day to go find your voting location, go down there, register, vote, get back. It's like, now it's like nine o'clock at night or something. It just doesn't make sense anymore. This issue was addressed by Elections Canada in the last election where they created um, uh, the uh, university voting uh, points. So if you were from like BC or some other place, you could come in and vote in person. Um, for whatever district you were, uh, resided in. But again, it's like, uh, this needs to be extrapolated amongst the wider population. And you look at the numbers itself, like the demographics for like 20, I think it's 18 to 34 year olds were the exact figures, were like 30%, 40% of voter interaction. And I don't believe the, the uh, I guess, assumption that people in that age group don't care about politics. I think they're very, very strongly affected by politics. It's just, what do you do? You know, you have a million other things to take care of. It's hard enough, like, doing anything, let alone taking time out of your day to learn, educate yourself, get used to the system, and then go vote. We figure, why not throw it on your phone? Yeah. It shouldn't be easier for me to get a date on Friday night than, or, or get food delivered to me within 15 minutes than it is, should be, you know, to cast a ballot for an mm -hmm. election. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. Like, I remember last time I went to vote, super frustrating because we were at a, voting at a school, and it was like a elementary school and a packed, and no, no place to park. It was packed. Mm -hmm. And just the frustration of finding parking to go and vote, mm -hmm. where the loan was like driving crazy. Right, so I mm -hmm. absolutely agree. I mean, why can't this be easier? Uh, why can't it, to engage more people? Mm -hmm. um, so what's the process been like? Um, I mean, how, how's your adoption rate? Like, have you guys, any municipality using this or? So with elections, now we're, now we're getting into like the, the startup lessons learned thing. Yeah. So coming up with an innovative electoral product is great, mm -hmm. fantastic stuff. 
Um, the only problem is the, the election cycles are every four years, typically. Yep. So how do you sell a product? You have like these windows where you can only sell it in certain areas. So how do you do it? Like how do you get that product off the ground? Yep. Um, so we launched officially our sales about a year ago. And we, we learned hard lessons really quick, as you do with startups. Mm -hmm. You know, fail fast. And um, we, well, the, the biggest uh, jurisdiction in online voting is Ontario. But the last election was 2018. So to even get into 2018's election, we would have need to been working on this thing or have a serviceable product in 2017, the beginning of 2017. So we, were already, we already missed the boat there. We looked at the US as some uh, potentials. We looked at Europe. And in the event, uh, in, or in the end, we basically just decided, okay, I think if we have this innovative product, then like, why don't we see if this actually does solve these problems? Like do some testing and then like talk to the industry as a whole, talk to the critics, talk to the municipalities, talk to the actual clients, um, the people that are gonna be using and buying this thing and the voters and see how they feel about it. And so that's what we've been doing. We actually went forward and we wanted to do, because there's so many stakeholders with this thing, it's not just a singular customer, we wanted to do a little bit more in-depth market research than what you probably would typically find. And um, to, to be honest, it's been really good. Like w one of the most notable critics um, in online voting gave us the tacit endorsement that like, okay, you know, we ran it by him. I was in this lengthy meeting, seven hour meeting, no breaks with three other cryptographers and like this guy. And he's just throwing attacks at me and I'm like, I'm turning it and countering the objections. I'm saying, well, what if we do this? Is this going to work? But like overall, does the does the processes make sense? And does it does the theoretically would this solve your objections to this this technology? And in the end, he had to kind of say like, yeah, I guess. And he's like, I like the verification system too. And I'm like, yeah, you know, yeah. like turning the critics. We've we, we've hit that. That was probably the biggest event of my life. Yeah. And like I've, I have a immense amount of respect for that guy because it was his objections that helped me come up with the solution that we did. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, uh, it, it's been a journey. But the big thing that we're doing is we're partnering with the other companies. We've, we think that this is not gonna be just a singular um, startup that just like does a single thing and, and like, or I guess changing the online voting industry isn't gonna be as easy as just like producing a product and like increasing your, your hockey stick graph of yeah. revenue, right? And we've been talking to the other companies and especially in this space because it is so arduous because it's so difficult and like the companies that are sticking with it are usually doing it for a for passion rather than just making money um, we've been talking to them we, i've met with a number of the other ceos and i basically said why don't we just try working together and raise the raise the market up to where we want it to be instead of fighting over uh, ontario municipalities or like a few countries here and there that are actually doing this right now Let's work on countering the objections, making people feel comfortable with this technology. And that might take a little bit longer than typical, you know, for a company. But I think if we work together and we, we get the messaging right and we succeed in creating a secure, stable environment to facilitate online voting, we'll be able to potentially change this thing at, at a federal level, maybe in not the next one, but maybe the one after. Maybe it'll be as easy as sitting down and pressing some buttons on your phone. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems like a very long-term kind of uh, move Right to to get mm. this in, into the into the environment. Um, how are you guys like finding yourself? How do you guys like uh, continue this project? How many people on the on the on the company? Like, mm. how's that how's that been? I before I started anything, I think for my first endeavor, I remember reading P Peter Thiel's book. Yeah. And Peter Thiel was zero to one. Zero to one. Yeah. yeah. And I think he says something in it. It's like 
you have to have a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, and a 15-year plan, maybe a 20-year plan, I don't yeah. remember. Sorry, Peter. But um, if you don't have the 15-year plan, you don't have a business. Because if you're looking, if, you're, if your goals are so short-term that it's like in five years we're gonna do this, it, it's nothing. So you, when you get into this, knowing that, that fact, and, and I, I was in complete agreement with it, we scoped it out for 15 years. Also, it kind of made sense because the elections are every four years, so coming up with a 12-year strategy made a lot more sense than coming up with like um, what our forecasts are gonna be for the next year. Mm. So for funding it, any startup prepare to spend all your own personal money, sell stuff, beg your friends and family, like you gotta, to get it off the ground, you gotta do what you gotta do. Bootstrap it, yeah. Yeah, you just gotta bootstrap it. There's no, like some people are lucky and have a, a windfall. Mm -hmm. uh, there's of course the unicorns you hear about. Generally though, my experience in talking to other founders, it's the, f the first couple years are brutal, yeah. absolutely brutal. And then things get a little bit easier and we're in the same spot. So the first few years, when I, when I started developing the system originally, like doing the research, I was working a full 40 hours a week. I had one kid at the time, another yeah. one on the way. And it was work all week, and then I would do what I can at night. And then I would take one day for my family on the weekend, and then one day for my company. And in the end, that, that didn't work. It wasn't tenable um, for my family. But that's, so we basically focused on the company. And like the family kind of dissolved. And like looking back on it, it's like, would I change it for the world? No. Like I, where I am now, looking back on those last three years, that's the kind of sacrifice you got to take. And you've seen this with other founders. Like it's funny reading the, the stories about certain people like um, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, or yeah. Elon Musk. It's yeah. really funny. They have like a really rocky uh, home work relationship. And like I'm not trying to compare myself to them at all, but like I get it. I totally get it. Like, you gotta be at work. Mm -hmm. You have to be working. If you really wanna get something off the ground, like, you, the time is a, is a commodity, and you have to make cuts somewhere. I remember reading a, 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 some kind of message. It was like, the word decide just means to cut in Latin. So, like, when you make a decision, you have to figure out what to cut. And so, for starting a company, it's like, you, can, you can't start a company and have, like, a, you know, a great relationship at home, and then, like, you, your time has to go somewhere. And it's either going to come out of your personal like health, like your personal uh, care, I guess. It's going to come out of time with your kids, or it's going to come out of time with your loved ones, or your significant other, or something. It has to come from somewhere. So, as we've gone through that stage, like that's how I had to structure it, and it's it's been brutal. Yeah. You know, now after doing it for a few years, yeah, the funding's coming in. We're making progress. Things are going up and up. But my God, I I remember one quote from Musk. He's like have a high pain tolerance yeah that's it yeah. have a high pain tolerance like there's been there's been days where you're just like i, I can't do this i just mm. want to get a real job i had a call i was on a call with a call center agent on my bank yesterday yeah and we were talking and it, he's like what are you doing today it's a beautiful day down in southern ontario and i was like oh man i've been working all day i haven't even been outside once and he's like yeah me too and i'm like man I, yeah i feel you i'm totally with you yeah and then he was, it's the business accounts. We were talking about the companies. Like, how does it feel to like work? And I'm like, I'm like, man, honestly, look at me. It's a beautiful day. I could be doing anything in the world right now. And I've been up since 6.30 this morning sitting in front of a computer. My window's open and that's my privilege yeah. for the day. Yeah. And um, tomorrow I'm gonna be you know, down here doing this. And it's like, you just have to be able to make those tough decisions and make those tough cuts and just see the goal for what it is and no matter what happens 
you just gotta like push through. So where did it come from? Like, where did the motivation to like do the that, that the cuts and and to prioritize this project more than anything else? Like, where is your motivation here? You have to really believe in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Like, you, it's like you you hear about founders or, or people start companies for different reasons. Like some people, some people it's just a business. They see a really good market fit. Perfect, yep. you know. Sometimes I wish I was doing that. Um, I was just passionate about this. I've always been like this. Um, politics has always been like an influence in my life. I remember when I did my first project, some friends from like the place I grew up, Edmonton, Alberta, they saw me on CBC and they're like, oh wow, and like an ex-girlfriend of mine got a message like, hey, you know, your, your ex is on CBC right now talking about voting or something. And um, she's like, oh yeah, I figured he'd do something like that. Makes <laughs> sense. She's, because they were like, oh, do you want to talk to him? Because they, yeah. they started, we started talking again. And she's like, no. But I figured, yeah, he would be do something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. like, this has been, it's just been a passionate thing for me for a long time. And then now I get, I'm, I'm blessed with being able to actually like put it into, put Was it into there a, like a trigger point, like uh, an event or something that like, yeah, this is, that pushed you towards solving this problem? Man, honestly, I think some people are just like, are just like a fit. So like, I, there's lots of things I could say about the catalyst, right? But I remember once in Ottawa, Ontario, I was growing, I was, I was in grade two yep. or three, like really young, I don't know how age that is. And I walked outside and there were like a group of kids, I guess there was two schools, a, an elementary school and maybe a high school or something right beside each other. And all these people were running around with like these things and they were like, hell yes, we protest or something. And I just like wandered off with them. Yeah. Like just wandered off with them for the rest of the day. There was a, like a, a, an alert, not when, didn't have Amber Alert yeah, back yeah. then, but like when they found me, oh man, I got in so much trouble. And they yeah. were like, what were you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I just like saw this thing, it was a big commotion. I kind of wandered away. <laughs> but I, I, that always stuck with me because I was like, whatever it was at that time, I was like, oh, this is interesting. You yeah. know, like, and then, but the, I think the biggest thing for me was American Idol. Okay. I was in high school at the time, right? And we were at this girl's house, very popular girl mm -hmm. um, named Britlin, and they couldn't care less about politics. You, you, I could have been one of those, you, those students where it's like, don't you care yeah. about like, all these things? Yeah. They, don't, they don't care. Fair enough, that's their thing. And um, American Idol came on, and all of a sudden everyone put their cell phone and started texting, like text 434 to vote for yeah. Kelly Clarkson or something. And they all did it, like that, like just like, oh yeah, and I, like back then, even at that time, like I wasn't, I was only like 16 years old or something, and that was like a while back. I was like, man, that's how you do it. That's the future of voting. Look yeah. how easy that was. Like if you, if it, you know, SMS can be spoofed, it's not that simple on a technical level, but my God, like you, that's how quickly you can get people interested in things again. And like there's been, there's been lots of people who have positioned democracy as like a direct like direct action between the electorate and the, and the laws that govern them. They call it direct democracy, and there's all types of implementations of it. For me, I'm, like, I'm not trying to change the political system, but I just think like creating that accessibility is, is easy mm. if you do it properly, but you have to you know, take things into account, and you have, to, you have to build a system that really works through all of the stakeholders. But for me, like, yeah, that, that thing always sat with me. So when I eventually got into this online voting thing like full-time, I kind of realized, I was like, man, this is it. And like, all of that hardship, all that struggle, when things fall apart, you know, when your, your girlfriend's freaking out because 
all she wants to do is go out yeah. for a drink or something and you're like you're like man i gotta do this work like yeah. can you please you have to see that goal and you have to be invested in it and at the end of the day all of those choices you, you don't want to be sitting at work one day in some meeting or sitting here and being like and re reiterating these 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 things you've done and be like oh man what did i do there because well, that was a bad decision. Like I, I, I hundred percent feel that it was the best decision at the time, and I'm, I'm glad I made it. Yeah, that's great. Um, so this is the topic that I, I bring up with everyone that comes on, right? Uh, so I tend to see founders that fall into like a spectrum mm. between visionaries and operators, mm. right? Visionaries are people who see a vision, you know, see the solution on the mountaintop and are haunted by it. Mm. And no matter where they go in life, they see that shining beacon and like it keeps dragging them towards it, and they try to run away from it. Mm. Um, and whereas uh, operators are more systematic. They start building things systematically and then head towards a goal and build things like that. And, mm. um, you know, these are two different like, methodologies of founding a business almost. Mm. People kind of stay within this um, spectrum. From what you said, you seem to be more the visionary type. Where, oh, 100%. Right? Yeah. Where you see this vision, you see how it could be, and you're almost dragged through it for like years now, you said, more, more, more than more, most of your life. Right. Yeah, yeah, pretty, like, I, I, I made the official decision to pivot into this mm -hmm. in 2015, yeah, okay. like, so it's been, but there's, like, a whole bunch of things that need to get done, and the, the, you're absolutely right about that, I, I, I don't call them, what did you call them, operators? Operators. I, I, I like to think of them as executors, Yeah. right, and when you have that, like, like, that vision, it's, it is. It's, it's just like, oh, it's that simple. You like see cell phones, you see voting, you're like, oh, okay, perfect. Even when you start designing the system, you're like, oh, this could work. But being able to like form that down, like especially when you're doing something that's really innovative. Like we think we have an innovative product, but we had to go through like the validation stage. It's mm -hmm. like, and, and as we've gone through the process, I remember one morning we were meeting with this group, a very prestigious uh, electoral group called the IFES, IFES. And they're based, they're like a state department funded initiative to promote democracy worldwide. And they, they, we had conversed with them a little bit and they wanted us on a conference call. And they sent us the name of the attendees on the call and one of them was a gentleman named uh, Sir Peter Urban. Mm -hmm. And, uh, cause he's a knight or whatever. And he's based out of the Ukraine at the time. And we get this, uh, I start looking him up the morning of the thing, just to do some background of who I'm gonna be sp speaking with. And there's like a video of him in September, 2017, the same month I incorporated the new vote where he's talking about hybrid mobile voting and how it has to be a combination. And I'm, it's like six o'clock in the morning and I'm screaming in my house. I woke up everybody, every, like my kids are like, what's going on? My girlfriend's like, and I'm like, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy, this is, this is it. Like yeah. this is a guy who's been, he's spent his whole life, he got a knighthood because of his, his um, influence in electoral systems, yeah. his, his work that he's done. And it's like, he's saying the same thing and it was like, the closest thing to validation for my particular like vision, I guess you could say, that I've ever had. And I, oh man, I was like, I was like, I'm like, watch. You have to watch this video. Like, like it's like waking my girlfriend up. Like, watch, watch this YouTube video. Yeah, yeah. See, see, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I wasn't crazy all this time. This is really how you were gonna do it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but for for us for, for a founding team, the visionary to, to have a combination of execution and visionary, like it's. I wish I had that. Yeah. But then again, you get, you get into like a team and part of the big uh, thing about, I think from a founder, part of the big thing about creating a successful enterprise is knowing your deficits and being able to fill them in. Like fill in the skill gaps, they call them, right? So if you lack that execution style, find somebody who does that. Mm -hmm. Find somebody who's just like methodical, systematic, can execute your vision and also believes in the vision 
while you focus on the other things. And it's yeah. like the difference between like a CEO and a COO. Yeah. Or what do they call them? CVO now? Chief Visionary Officer or something? Yeah. Chief, Chief Strategic Officer or something, yeah. yeah. So if the CEO doesn't have the vision, then the vision, uh, person take care of the vision. Or if the CEO has a vision and it needs execution, you bring an operations person. Yeah, like yeah. sometimes you just need to fill in. You, but th that, that you, you, you also have to have that like sense of under self-awareness, I guess I'd call yeah. it, where it's like, I'm not the best executor. But when it comes down to like scoping out a vision or developing technologies, like like I would consider myself an expert in online voting at this point. Yeah, I've been doing this for my for almost going on five years, where I've been like honestly like researching and, and I can I can sit down and talk to another CEO of a more a, a company that's been around for twenty years and be on on par with them. And we we're all taking you know talking the same language. But when it comes to understanding corporate structure, I'm learning for the first time. Yeah, and like I get into conversations weekly with people where they're like hang on, what now? You haven't done this? And I'm like, what do you mean I haven't done it? I don't know. I once even told an investor when we were closing a deal and I was like, I know I lack the business experience, but I'm, gonna, I'm working on that. I'm learning quickly. In fact, I was even thinking about going and taking an MBA in September. And he's like, he's like I don't want you saying that. He's like, you're doing really well. I just gave you money for your like vision to go and execute it. If you go take an MBA, it's like that's going to take away so much of your time yeah. from actually like running the company. He's like, look, go hire somebody. We'll yeah. give you more money. Find somebody to, with an MBA. Yeah. And then as soon as he said that, uh, I was with a guy and he's like, he told me that other Musk quote, or that famous one where it's like, I don't need to have an MBA from Harvard. I just need to hire somebody who does. Yeah. 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 It's funny because like uh, the, you find it a lot. The people who go and do MBAs are just don't know what to do with their life. Right, mm. um, their goal there to discover what they want to do or to make the connection to, to progress in life. Right, whereas yeah, this is a problem with founders. It's like there's no real quick answer solution to learn everything. Right, we, we have mm. these like boot camps now coming up, these classworks, but to to like learn all the skill gaps, you first have to understand what skill the gaps are that you don't have. I, mm -hmm. I call it the unknown unknowns. When I first started my first um, mm. tech company, I was like 24, no background in technology at all. Mm -hmm. And uh, I literally sat for a whole summer and just read, writing a list of my unknown unknowns. And then every time, like I'll write something like, like Java. What is Java? Like what are the programming languages? List mm -hmm. all the programming languages. So learning the, the minutiae of each one of them, how they interconnect. And as you learn, you start finding out all the different stuff that you didn't even know existed because you don't even know that's in the field. So for every answer you make, you get like three, four, five more questions. And by the end of mm -hmm. summer, this huge like list compiled. Right, of all the things I didn't know, and I'm like, Holy, like this, <laughs> this is what I'm trying to get into. It's like I just spent three months, and this is all the unknowns that was there. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of blew my mind, like how much other stuff there could be that I didn't know. And that kind of paralyzes you too, and you're too focused on that. So I think it's absolutely right. Right, but finding the other people who are experts, but you're not, mm -hmm. and bring them on board. And again, that's a skill too, right? Of being able to bring people into your vision, right? I, the big thing, though, if I, if, if I could, if, if anyone ever watches this and takes away one thing, know when you're wrong, mm. and just be able to just be like, like a business plan, for example. So I've never did a business plan. Yeah. So I like, I'm like, oh, business plan for my company. Like we just did this recently. Like we've been running on just like um, mostly the development side for right now. We're actually formalizing the actual business modeling right now. Yeah. So I do the whole business plan. It's like 28 pages, huge. Every piece of information's in there. And this is going out to investors, potential investors, and the whole team to get an absolute method, like like line by line sense of what we're doing and how to go about doing it. And I sent it to my girlfriend at the time. My girlfriend is a, um, 
UX designer. So she had like a master's in UX design and everything. But she's also taken um, an innovation course from the University of Waterloo, so it, she, she kind of understands like the general business sense, whatever they teach you in school. I never, I never learned that. They don't teach that in journalism school. <laughs> so I, I do this thing and I get, I get it back from her and she's just like, wow, it needs a lot of work. And I was like, what? You don't know anything. You're a UX designer. Like, I, I, I totally like lashed out and I, I, it, I shouldn't have done it, but mm. it was like, I felt attacked. Like, yeah. it was like, what do you mean? I don't know my business. Like, I've been running this thing. We're, we're, we're having investors, we have customers, we're doing really well. Like, what are you telling me? Like, what, don't talk to me about this stuff. <laughs> she was absolutely right. Yeah. Every, every point she made on that call was absolutely right. I just, it, you had to like, you had to swallow that pride. And like, I called her back and I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, like I, you're absolutely right. I listened to every single thing you did. Yeah. And it's sometimes it, it sucks. It sucks to be told like you're not good at something. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you suck overall. Or your vision's poor or something like that. It just means, okay, you know, like you said, there's there's things that I had no idea about. Like just simple things that you think you would be able to figure out. Yep. No, like you're never prepared, and you got to be able to go into it and just be like, I don't know what's going on. I need to get a hold of and figure out like right away kind of thing yeah. what's going on. I mean, it's about removing the ego out of the equation. Your oh, own yeah. personal ego, right? I think Gary Vee said it the best when he was like, if you're trying to create something, right, your ego is your biggest, is your biggest blockage, mm -hmm. right? What you're creating has to be bigger than you. It has to be worth more to you than your ego. So you gotta swallow that and put it aside to grow this thing that's gonna be bigger than you. And, um, I think that's one of the big, biggest things is that you realize the solution that you've solved, the, the startup, the mm. technology, the application, whatever you're building is meant to solve a problem for everybody. So it's, even though you're starting it, it's not just about you anymore, mm. right? And when you put that into perspective, it kind of humbles you to be like, okay, this is what I'm solving for everybody else. All the different things that you put into piece, put, it to put together, bring it on a team, right? Giving away uh, equity to do that, bringing an investor, giving away equity of doing that, breaking the company apart like that. Mm -hmm. It's all about, you, this is all the steps you need to do to build this thing that's bigger than you. Mm -hmm. So it'll exist even if you're out, out of the equation. That's essentially what it is. You're trying to build this thing that'll propagate and, and live on and solve, solve problems regardless of your, if you're involved or not. And that's one of the biggest problems that founders have, the letting go aspect, I find, right? Yeah, so I feel that. Yeah. Like, I think the biggest, the biggest thing for me, so a year ago, we, we were sending out like our first feelers into the market mm. and we got a response from South Africa, like one of our first ones, right? And I'm like, the, not, not just South Africa, but like the CIO of South Africa, okay. the chief information officer. I was like, Labisi um, Mafanga, that was his name. And we were like, they here's the response. They just booked a meeting in Johannesburg in Pretoria. And we're like, um, is this really happening? Like, yeah. should, we, should we go to this? Is this how this works kind of thing? And, and we're getting ready. And I'm like, okay. And we confirmed it was a meeting. I called the office one day. I woke up and due to the time limit, it was like 3 a.m. And I called them and I'm like, yeah, I'm just confirming that you want me in person in your office on this date. And they're like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, that's what the meeting request said. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, sorry, I'll be there. Oh, perfect. We bet we buy a ticket. We get ready. But then all of a sudden, like, I'm the CEO of a company now. It's kind of taking shape in my head. And everyone's like, what if you do, what if something happens? Cause like I was talking to other people, I was talking to um, the CEO of Exonify, Carol Lehman. And she's like, oh yeah, you, you know, I go to South Africa here and there, we do business there. You have to be careful though. Cause she's like, what are you gonna do? I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, 
fly in, take an Uber, <laughs> yeah. stare at it, stay in an Airbnb like I would in, in any other city in the world. Yeah. She's like, oh no. She's like, you need, you need to make sure, like, you gotta have like everything protected. Like, what are you gonna do with your company? So we're talking to the company, like my team, and I'm like, oh, I think I should actually like write down instructions in case I die. And I, it was at that moment where I realized like, I'm not critical anymore. Yeah. The team is now self-sufficient. If I were to drop dead, like heaven forbid, like knock on wood right now. But if I were to die, the vision and the team is now self-sustaining. It will live on without me kind of thing. And I think once you hit that point, it's like, whoa, you know, like this is like a, a, a big child that you've brought into the world. And mm. now you have other people believing the same vision. Well, they may be executed like you will. Who knows? Maybe better. Who knows? Right. And I think that's when you have to have kind of a self-realization that like it is bigger than you. This is something that could change things for uh, even the small users you may have or whatever your, your, your thing is. Those people are really going to take your product and, and your thing to heart. And like, this is it now. You've birthed something into the world. Mm -hmm. Do your best at creating it and like seeing it through. And yeah, it, but like, it, it, I, I think becoming a father was a big thing for me because it kind of gave me that, that sense of like responsibility and ownership, but also like independence of it, yeah. you know? Like, like, I don't own my kids. I don't control them. They come back at me with some crazy stuff sometimes. But just like the company, right? The company is now this own thing. It's going to go off and take shape, however that may be. And like all those people that we were talking about filling in those skill gaps are going to help shape it. And you always have to be able to like be, be uh, what's the word? able to absorb that, those shapes and it mm -hmm. changes you and all of a sudden you're talking like your sales guy yeah. or you, the jargon comes out somebody some investor some sales guy you know shoot out some you know what's the ARR and you're like Ooh, google that really quick and then yeah. I'm like oh our ARR is this and then you yeah. start using it all the time yeah. or the word agreeable yeah like the jargon comes in is that agreeable I start saying it to my girlfriend my girlfriend's like I hate it <laughs> I hate it when you start saying this stuff cuz like you sound so business but yeah. I'm just like look I just learned this word on Sunday. I've been using it for three days now. Yeah. It's become my lexicon, right? Yeah. No, it happens all the time, right? Yeah. Um, I started hanging out with a few guys in private equity, mm. right? And I started picking up all this because I'm like, I realized how little I know about the finance and the money moving yeah. part of the world. So I started sharing with them. And then same thing with me, it's uh, MMR, right? Became yeah, part yeah, of my yeah, lexicon. Yeah. And I thought you can get it everywhere. Yeah. Right? To the point where like, guys I work with, they're like, why do you keep saying this yeah. word? <laughs> what does it mean? Yeah. It gets crazy. The, yeah. the, the language is just, oh, man, I can't even, yeah. oh, just, so, just the littlest things. I can't, yeah. even, I can't even describe it. But, but it's like a pride factor, too, because it's yeah. like, this is something I've been missing. Now I understand it's required for my business. So I'm going to make it part of me. Mm. So I use it as much as I can to like, never be kept out of the loop again. Mm. It's kind of weird, right? But back to like the father thing and birthing something, right? Like, mm. That's really interesting because a lot of the visionary types of uh, founders mm. I talk to, they say the same thing. It's like, it's almost like starting a startup or starting this idea is almost a spiritual quest, right? Mm. It's like you're birthing something into the world, something that's bigger than you. Mm. Um, and it's really interesting that you said the same, same thing and you led up to that, that you're birthing something into the world. So I just want to dive back into your, your past in cybersecurity. Mm. Right, so partly why you're so um, so effective with the, your solution mm. is because you come back from a background in cybersecurity, right? You grew up with, grew up in that kind yeah, of environment. Yeah, it's uh, it's like it's like my like family, I guess. Right, like my yeah. my father um, was a one of the old school engineers, like mm -hmm. like IT infrastructure people from you know back in 
uh, well, I was born in 83, so they would be, that would be like early 80s. Like he didn't graduate with like a CS degree because they didn't exist, yep. right? He just grabbed computers and started playing around with them. And um, I grew up with it. And like back then, you know, fathers raised their sons a little bit differently. So instead of like teaching me stuff, he would just give me his old computer. He'd get the new model, he'd give me his old one. And then I would just tinker with it until I figured it out. Yeah. And I kind of grew up, well, he was IT and like he understood the whole systems and he would like, he could build a computer, he could write computer code, he could speak, you know, understand binary, which he prides himself on. But it's like, I got the internet side of it. Mm. So we were like doing f fun things on the internet. So it's not like just cybersecurity, it was like anything I did in the house, he was monitoring yeah. anything. Yeah. So like, you know, when you're a kid and you want to see maybe a picture you shouldn't be seeing on the internet, you had to be aware that like your dad is watching the network and can see the addresses you're going to <laughs> and everything. So you have to figure out ways to get around it. Yeah. And I still remember like at one point, like the turning point for that where I kind of realized like I had a little bit of skill above him was he was asking me for a song when like mp3s became were first coming out when they first became encoded and people were uh, sharing them on news groups mm. like not even like napster we're talking like irc news groups and stuff yeah and he's like i like this song but i can't find it can you find it and i came back like 30 minutes later and i'm like yeah here it is nice and he was just like it's like hmm like that, that yeah. hmm is just like yeah, yeah. yeah you know i got it because yeah we just i just learned how to basically hide everything away and okay. kind of i had this 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 observer watching everything i did on the internet yeah. and and you know we played around with stuff it probably did some things not criminal but like messed with people's computers and stuff like that and so but funny enough like when you have that as a dynamic i think it's like a natural most kids rebel right like they rebel in some way i really rebelled i was like he, my dad had this whole, he was wealthy and had a computer company and he was doing well for himself. And he's like, you're gonna take it over. You need to be, you need to learn how to handle this yeah. and stuff. But for me, I was like, no, I don't want, I don't want anything to do with that. I wanted to do my own thing. And for a long time, I like took off. And I just like left Canada for years, traveled all over the place. And then because of that background though, I did really cool stuff. like. Um, we were talking about Japan and the Iranian that took that picture. When I was over there, there's a huge Iranian expat community. And Iran was going through something called the Green Revolution while I was in Japan. So some of my friends there, they were like, okay, can, you know, we're setting up some like VPN nodes to get these guys because the internet got shut down. And I was like, yeah, I can do that. And I set up a whole terminal for them so that they could like connect outside of, uh, outside of Iran. And so like little things like that were always a big part of like who I was. So when I started getting into this, it wasn't that I had like this extensive cybersecurity background and I wanted to set up this whole thing. It was like, I grew up with having to protect my data, my privacy online from my father, uh, anybody if I was doing something like downloading an MP3, like you gotta make sure that you're protected. So I just simply applied that knowledge to online voting. Okay, so we have a system that is secret, has to remain secret. How do we best accomplish that thing? And then how do we protect it from even government uh, observation? How do we protect it from hackers? How do we protect it from other governments trying to, you know, play with the system or something mm -hmm. like that? Um, I, so it, it wasn't that I had this like big degree in, in, in cybersecurity, like um, my friends have much more extensive knowledge, like intricate knowledge of like the actual infrastructure, but it's the methodology, like the methodology. It's, it's look, we can come at this from like a disruptive kind of point of view, like the, like the old, hacker, you know, kind yeah, of mentality yeah. and stuff, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, when we first met, we were talking, and you really painted this picture of how you wanted to be like, like a war journalist on the ground somewhere, like encoded messages, like helping people yeah. communicate, right, information, uh, and, and, uh, out, and out of a country or a situation where being monitored could lead to death, mm. right? And I'm like, whoa, you went. Uh, that's a <laughs> that's a completely different uh, kind of environment, right? Like very hardcore kind mm -hmm. of like take some nerdy, nerdy skills and take it into a very hardcore situation. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's a pretty cool. <laughs> well, uh, like at the time it was like, you know, Snowden's thing was a big thing. Yeah. And like, you know, he like, they, they uh, dramatized it in that Citizen Four or whatever. And it's like, they used the guy from Inception, jo yeah. Joseph Levitt, I think his name yeah. is. And it's like, you make it cool. You got like, and then you grow up with like the Matrix, Johnny Mnemonic, hackers, like you're reading, like it's like, you know, information is sort of like, yeah, cyberpunkish or whatever, right? The reason why I want to be a war reporter was just, I, I, just, I had been traveling for so long and like, I found myself really comfortable in really extreme situations where it's like, you're really under a lot of pressure um, or like where it should be really stressful, but mm. I just kind of calmed down in it. And I think it's just the way I've been, I was raised and, it's, it, and some of the stuff I've done. You just get really calm, so I figured, okay, this is a really noble endeavor, so it fits my, it fits my social conscious, I guess, kind of um, profile. And then it's also, you know, I'm using technology, I'm doing something positive, and maybe I, it's something that, like, I can combine those two things in. Man, for a bit, to be honest, before my son was born, I, uh, I was going to do journalism and then join the French Foreign Legion so I could, like, get a new identity, go to Europe, get a new identity, and, like, completely be this, like, wandering vagrant who just like <laughs> sneaks into somewhere like like yeah. solid snake from metal gear solid yeah yeah yeah, like yeah. That, yeah and then my son was born and all of that went uh, by the wayside yeah yeah i can imagine that like th that's always kind of like the freedom dream right being mm -hmm. able to come and go anywhere you want and kind of do cool things like that mm -hmm. like, would you ever consider being like a spy i don't know it's funny that when i started this online voting thing we were talking and someone's like people are going to try to kill you, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, maybe, you know. <laughs> but it's like the South Africa thing. When yeah. everyone, we, we were looking at some, some opportunities. One was um, Libya. We were talking to the IFAS gentleman who was in charge of Libya. And like, we were talking about doing some work there and I'm yeah. like, yeah, I'll, I'll go to Libya. But then they're like, you, you can't go to Libya. There's no government. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I'll go to Tunisia right next door and we can just do whatever from there. Like, yeah, yeah. I, would, I thought it would be really interesting. And, and then everyone was like, you can't go to these places. Like, you do realize, like, you have to like, run the company right now and do these things. Like, you should probably have somebody in Tunisia who's Tunisian who knows the area probably doing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But I'm just really, I, I, I like to do it. And I like to think that if you, you know, you use your skills wisely and you have a good opportunity, you can do some real good in the world with it. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, man, this has been a really good, really interesting conversation. Uh, I really appreciate you being so candid with your background and like uh, how you came up with the, came up, came to the point you are right now. Mm. Um, this is the kind of things we want to highlight with BoomX, right? With the podcast, uh, talk to founders like yourself and get more into the minutia of, you know, what are the backgrounds and how they process all the trials and tribulations that they go through. Um, mm. So yeah, thank you for coming on. No, it's I wish been a you all pleasure, Ravi. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, any follow-up, I guess, just, yeah, be prepared for the burn, and sometimes it takes a little bit uh, an outside perspective to kind of do something cool. Yeah. Definitely. Perfect. Thanks, Max. No problem. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Good.